Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Peter Skoufalos. I'm a, uh, a partner with the firm of Brown, Gavalis and Fromm here in New York City. And I am the chairman of the uh, Maritime Law Association's Arbitration and ADR Committee. And uh, welcome to uh, this morning's panel. Um, uh, as you can see, we have the intriguing title today, the uh, $62 million question, uh, uh, Arbitration Clauses in Leases, Mortgages, Purchase and Sale and Finance Documents. Uh, you'll notice I rounded off the number because we've got a lot of things to cover today. Um, uh, we'd like to thank uh, Nick Bornosis and Capital Link for allowing the uh, Society of Maritime Arbitrators to highlight the important work they do here. Um, uh, and the uh, ADR solutions that they offer to the shipping community. Um, and today, as will be the focus of our panel, uh, we're going to look at uh, non-traditional uh, uh, arbit arbitrated disputes, not the charter party disputes that we're all familiar with, but other types of, uh, of uh, shipping matters, shareholders agreements, sale and purchase agreements, ship mortgages and other ship finance deals that get arbitrated under the auspices of the uh, Society of Maritime Arbitrators. Uh, for those of you who are not aware, the SMA is a 65-year-old organization with approximately 80 arbitrator members um, consisting of ship owners, uh, shipping executives, uh, insurance executives, lawyers, naval architects, a broad array of experience uh, in shipping uh, that can get parties' uh, issues resolved efficiently. Um, it's, uh, the, um, the mission of the SMA is to promulgate arbitration and mediation to establish commercially effective legal procedures for ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution. Um, and uh, the SMA trains and provides the maritime industry with uh, experienced commercial professionals who resolve these in an impartial, timely, and cost-effective uh, manner. Now, uh, I'd like to turn to our panel members. Immediately to my left is Neil Kataro, a of counsel with the firm of Watson, Farley, and Williams. Uh, to Neil's left, Jane Sarma, a partner with uh, Reed Smith. And to Jane's left, Dan Schmidt, vice president of MTM Group in Connecticut and also an arbitrator member of the uh, SMA. Um, Neil, uh, I'd like to start off with you. Uh, I, I read a recent uh, survey uh, that was conducted by the School of International Arbitration at Queen Mary University uh, in London uh, that reported that over 90% of respondents thought that arbitration was the way to resolve international commercial disputes. What is your view? Why such overwhelming support for the arbitral process? What are the benefits of the process? Well, thank you, Peter, and uh, thank you, everybody, uh, for joining us today. Uh, well, you know, the, the thing that we always hear the most about, both as lawyers and when we're talking to our clients, are efficiency and speed. Uh, I wish that it were not true, but it certainly is true uh, that a litigation before the state courts in New York can drag on for years. Uh, there are other jurisdictions where it can be even longer. Uh, I have a, a colleague in India who informed me not, uh, not too long ago that the oldest case in India started in 1936 and is still ongoing on the third generation of lawyers. So while we're not quite that slow uh, through uh, the state commercial uh, department and, uh, and all the way up into Albany, things can take a very long period of time. 
And so there's certainly, you know, a speed aspect uh, to arbitration. I've got a pretty big one on my desk right now, which um, to the great annoyance of counsel has a provision in the underlying uh, arbitration uh, clause that says an arbitration must be completed in six months. Um, it's a huge dispute approaching a billion dollars. No, no one has any idea how we can get that done in six months, but that's, you know, when the deal was made, that's, that's what people were thinking. Uh, and the arbitral tribunal will try to hew very closely to that timeline. Uh, there is also a cost aspect, and in particular, uh, especially for our friends who are not as familiar with U.S. law or who've only uh, experienced pieces of it, one of the things that we tend to see a lot less of in arbitration, of course, is discovery, right? Everybody's terrified of U.S. discovery, and sometimes, you know, for good reason. Even a small dispute can very quickly, uh, if you're in litigation, can very quickly involve tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars of costs on the uh, discovery piece particularly reviewing uh, and producing electronic records, emails, and, and things like that. Uh, there's probably not a commercial litigator in this city who has not now run an e-discovery project, and I can tell you they're lengthy, costly, and somewhat painful. Uh, you have to go through pretty much every email uh, that might have been exchanged between all of the people on your side um, with respect to a, a given dispute. So that's a time-consuming, laborious process. In, in arbitration, by contrast, parties typically produce uh, the documents that they intend to rely on. Now, that can, of course, create some issues, and some arbitral panels will assist with limited discovery, uh, but those two pieces are, are really, I think, critical and the primary basis on which people decide whether or not to use arbitration or not. There is an extra piece, though, for maritime arbitration, and that is expertise. If you're talking about a general run-of-the-mill contract dispute, you might be perfectly comfortable going down to the AAA or the ICC or something like that. If you're talking about something that has more of a maritime aspect, you may well want people deciding that dispute who have industry background, who have familiarity, who understand uh, you know, what a sale and purchase agreement might be that is, that then has a back-to-back -back bare boat that's really a sale and leaseback transaction. They'll understand what that is and why it's being done in a way that maybe the casual layperson uh, may not. Another big advantage to arbitration, and particularly for the SMA uh, arbitration, is consolidation. And I think uh, we've got a, a copy of the uh, section of the SMA rules. And there are copies of the SMA rules around, folks. I'd recommend taking one with you. It's always nice to have as a reference, especially, you know, hopefully you're never in the dispute, uh, dispute zone. But if you are, it's always a good idea to have the playbook, you know, close at hand. So why do you care about dis uh, consolidating disputes? Um, many people have clients like I do who are only one entity in a chain. So perhaps a commodity will be purchased, uh, purchased from one company. Uh, my client may arbitrage that. It may be sold on to another company. There could be two charters in there. If there is one problem, generally speaking, you want to try and get everybody into the same room. And being able to consolidate arbitrations can really, really help with that, especially if your client has followed uh, what is hopefully the advice being given to them, which is to make all of those contracts in that chain subject to the same body of law and hopefully have back-to-back -back arbitration provisions. Uh, so that, you know, that can, that can really help with that speed and, and efficiency. Um, another big aspect, and I think we're seeing this especially uh, with the rise of, uh, of trade in and out of places that are much more difficult to enforce things judicially. In effect, they have judicial systems that are difficult to grapple with for outsiders, is finality. You know, we've got the New York Convention, 
Uh, it's been uh, uh, ratified by 159 states. When you have an arbitration award that's issued uh, by the SMA, by the ICC, uh, American Arbitration Association, you can go most places in the world and enforce that absent a very, very limited uh, list of grounds, specifically enumerated grounds, on which that decision can be rejected. And I can tell you as a New York litigator, New York courts don't reject arbitration decisions very often. And I would just close on the finality point um, by, by noting that, in fact, the uh, New York Court of Appeals just did exactly that. They reinstated a $100 million arbitration award that had been overturned at the lower court level uh, on one of these enumerated grounds. And the appeals court just noticed this is a really high standard, right? We want these awards to be final. We're not going to let judges cherry pick through what the arbitrators might or might not have done. Uh, and they put that award uh, back in place. So if you do add arbitration provisions to any contract that you're considering working on, uh, getting into uh, with a counterparty, you should know that by putting an arbitration clause in there, if there's a problem down the road, you're probably saving yourself time, you're definitely saving yourself money, and you're going to get a product at the end of that that you can use that's final and then can be enforced somewhere else. I, I think uh, um, we've got actually a really uh, interesting example of that that hopefully we can, uh, we can discuss at the end. Um, but in the meantime, I'd like to turn it over to my friend and colleague, uh, Jane Sarma, and uh, I think she wants to discuss some of the remedies that you can get at the beginning of an arbitration case. Yes, Jane, uh, Neil just covered some of the general benefits, uh, and specifically the benefits of consolidation under Section 2 of the SMA rules. Could you address for us now the uh, specific aspect of pre-award security uh, the benefits, why that's important to the litigants, uh, the, necess the necessity of maintaining the status quo during the course of the uh, arbitration, and assuring that the award ultimately isn't rendered futile by some dramatic change in a party's uh, financial structure. And I'll put up the uh, relevant great. rule on the screen while you talk about it. Oh, great. Thanks, Peter. And thanks, Neil. Um, now we're going to jump from Section 2 to the back of the SMA rules to Section 30. And Section 30 expressly allows the arbitrators to require pre-award security. Now this is a very important feature for arbitration because who wants to go through the whole process of getting an arbitration award and then not having anything to enforce against? Uh, the SMA rules were amended just earlier this year to expressly allow for this. But this isn't a new feature. Arbitrators have, for many years, had the power to order security. And the factors that arbitrators look at are first, has a prima facie case been made? Is there a claim that is on its face a meritorious claim? Claims that are not patently frivolous or very weak at any stage in the proceeding? are eligible for the arbitrators to consider an award of security. Now that's not the only prong. The other prong is, is there a likelihood that proceeding all the way to the end of the case, to the end, to a final award, is there a likelihood that the prevailing party will be unable to collect on that award? Which is very important because if a party can show that they have sufficient financial strength then there's really no need for security. And then it's really 
sort of a question of, of uh, trying to gain points. And that's not what security and arbitration is for. It's to have something to collect against. Where the outcome of an arbitration might be frustrated by non-payment, this is a powerful tool. Now, the arbitrators don't apply this to every case. It, it's something that a party must request, and you must show grounds for it. If there are insurance proceeds, for example, that might be grounds for denying security. If the arbitration is close to its end and there's going to be an award very soon, that's a factor weighing against security unless there's really a financial need for it. Uh, but this is, this is very, a very powerful tool um, and one of, the, one of the unique benefits of Society of Maritime Arbitrators arbitration. The same provision also allows specific performance. So in arbitration, you can get not just an award of damage, damages, but specific performance. For example, if you've got a ship sale contract with an arbitration provision and the sale goes south, um, the prevailing party could compel the seller to continue with that sale or can, could compel the buyer to proceed with that sale. Or in a charter, if there's an extension of charter, it's possible that the charterer could require the owner to furnish the vessel if ordered by an arbitrator. So there's a lot of flexibility in what the arbitrators can, can award, and that's a tremendous value. There are other benefits to SMA arbitration, um, particularly as compared to uh, some of our colleagues in other countries. SMA awards are published. They're reasoned awards unless requested by the parties to be kept confidential. And those awards are available on LexisNexis and Westlaw, as well as through the SMA. Uh, this is an amazing tool. They do not have precedential value like a, like a court case would, but they provide a lot of guidance, and arbitrators do tend to look to prior cases and to be consistent in their rulings. Uh, one of the stories that I like to tell is that almost every week, I get a call from somebody in our London office or an email from them, and the tone of the call is always the same. Hi, how you doing? You know, we've got a case here in arbitration that's on this, on these topics, and we were just curious. How would that be treated in New York under an SMA arbitration? So these SMA decisions, maybe our London colleagues don't come out and say it, but they're using them in London arbitration as uh, guidelines, if not as case precedent. So that's, that's a big value for having arbitration here in New York under SMA rules. Uh, oh, one thing I forgot to mention when I was talking about specific performance and security is what do you do once you have this award? What good's an award if you can't enforce it? Well, a security award or a specific performance award through arbitration is an enforceable award. It's an interim final award that you can take to any court and have it enforced just like a, a final award in arbitration. So you have not only the power of the arbitrators behind the award, you can get it enforced through a court and have the power of the courts to enforce the award. And that is a fantastic tool. Um, I think I've eaten all my time and some of others. So I will hand it back to Peter so he can bump it on down to Dan and uh, Thanks, Shane. keep things Before moving. Before we move on, I just, I, there was a case you and I had talked about, the Sangabon decision. Mm -hmm. um, 
I wonder if you just give us a couple of minutes on that. I, I oh, know sure. that uh, the security was ordered in that case. It wasn't a typical charter party dispute. It had to do with um, right. a, a change in the financial structure. I, can, were the arbitrators able to sort through what was going on there and the changes in the party's uh, corporate structure in that case? Yes, that, that was a very interesting arbitration decision. It, it was a charter dispute, but during the course of dispute, one of the parties changed their corporate structure. They had a new owning company and they shifted companies around. And when you shift companies around, you shift, fi shift finances around too. They argued they had a very valid business reason for doing so, but the other party was a little suspicious. And so they applied for an award of security to the arbitrators showing that the companies had changed, the financial structure had changed. The arbitrators were able to grant an award of pre, grant pre-award security because the financial structure was changing. They didn't know where the funds were going to be at the end of the arbitration. They did not judge that the party that was changing its structure was doing anything wrong. That was not the sort of decision it was. But they wanted to ensure that there was something to collect against at the end if there was an award. So the arbitrators really can can use their powers to keep everything on, on, a, on a fair and even keel throughout the course of a case. Great. Thank you, Jane. Uh, uh, Dan, turning to you, you're, you're the businessman on the uh, panel here. Yeah. Uh, from your purchase, uh, vice president over at MTM, uh, can you give us a perspective of what it's like as a, let's say, a consumer of the arbitration process? And also, you've got the unique perspective that you're also an SMA arbitrator, so you can give us some insights. So what, what do shipping companies look at, and why do they like the arbitral process, or why do they not like the arbitral process? Well, I think there are a lot of companies who don't like the, the process, and do, but do like the process. Um, uh, take us, for example. We're, our company owns and operates a fleet of 50 ships, 30 tankers, uh, 15 dry cargo ships, so 45. We have a technical management company of about 75 vessels. Uh, my division, we were getting a little bit frustrated with process. We decided to change it to no arbitration, direct to court. Um, we had an incident happen. We had a dispute. We got our wish. We went direct to court. And it was an extremely painful process to the point where we were actually asking the other counterparty, can we switch it to an arbitration clause to end this? And the party knew we didn't like this, knew, knew they could probably have a commercial settlement from us if they didn't switch. So they didn't switch, and we had a commercial settlement. Since that moment, we've gone right back to arbitration clauses. And which law, which, which forum is, is up for debate of who's in the upper hand? You know, market, sometimes market conditions dictate where you can actually get your, your, uh, your forum and your law. In 2016, I had zero say over where I can get anything. I basically had zero say in charter party clauses. It was accepted. The market was so horrible. But now that's coming back to an owner's market, we actually have control a little bit on changing clauses, including arbitration clauses, which, as I said, it's not perfect, but it's, it's the vi most viable option in the case of dispute for reasons you all have said. Um, also, we're seeing a change where the SMA, they're doing a big uh, membership push where you're seeing a lot of new members come a lot of refreshing members, 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm 36 years old, and uh, I, I, I run the division, but uh, the, the SMA saw us having value, and uh, went through the process, and became an, became an arbitrator. And I think that just goes to show the open-mindedness and how they want to uh, have new members come in, new blood to come in and start looking at the way business is done or the way arbitration is done. Uh, where was I? So in th this job and other jobs I've done, obviously the, not just the charter party. So I think a lot of people, and I think honestly why we have a lot of empty seats here is when, pe when people think SMA and arbitration, they think charter party clauses, and that's not applicable to me. Uh, these, little, these little charter party disputes, that's not, that's not for me. But in reality, it's, it's very much for everybody at this conference, and it's, it's a shame that more people didn't come here because uh, it's very relevant in, in bare boat charters, sale and purchase, lease backs. And again, as market conditions has been on the sale and purchase side, you had the power to say, well, I want arbitration here or there. Um, for example, there was a bare boat uh, award, 2X versus Ultra Petrol. It's a straightforward bare boat, basically a leasing structure, but uh, it, was, it was treated as a bare boat. The leasing company owners of the fleet of 10 barges uh, put up, ordered the ships, paid, paid for the barges when they were completing with construction, and then subsequently leased them to Ultra Petrol. Ultra Petrol, their, their flagged Panama, Ultra Petrol then eventually uh, registered their business in Paraguay and with Paraguay law. And seven or three of the ten barges fell out of that, uh, were too late to get into some, to the, to the law of the government. The government changed their position and the charterers then claimed the owners, which is a simple leasing company, this is a bare boat structure, that they are now unable to trade the barges, and it's up for the owners of the, of the barges to, to provide a, a tonnage that can trade in these waters. The owners of the barges, the leasing company 2X, disputed this, and eventually the arbitration panel awarded uh, to the owners, to the leasing company, a, um, saying that they did not have the right they did not have the obligation to make sure that the, the barges complied with the laws. So that's something you wouldn't think about. You, you do a 10-year bare boat. Um, it's fine until something goes wrong. And then one of the first clauses you turn and look to in your agreement is the arbitration clause. Where's my law? Is, is there any case law? Is there any case history? Um, another example is expedited hearings, as we've somewhat touched upon, where uh, there's an agreement, there's a disagreement, there's a dispute. Um, there was a dispute in a, another bare boat where uh, there was an option for additional period. The, the owners of the, of the vessel said this is the fair market value at the end of the lease. The charterer said that's not fair market value. Uh, the, the, they both, both sides agreed the contracts were poorly, poorly worded. And the, uh, the, they, just, they agreed to take it to expedited process where um, the, uh, the owner of the, of the vessel was actually proven right. But it was a very quick, 
very simple process, but by the time it was over, actually, they, the, the charterers missed a window of opportunity to execute their, their, uh, their option on the barges. That's Great. Good. Dan, thanks very much, and, give us, and thanks for giving us some examples of, uh, of uh, actual awards in which uh, you know, the topics we're discussing today are, uh, uh, were considered. Um, uh, in the remaining five minutes or so that we've got here, I, I, I wanted to talk about sort of the, uh, the case from which our panel today derives its name, uh, and that's the uh, 2017 award in the uh, arbitration award of the SM, SMA in uh, CME versus CVG Ferro Aminera. Um, Neil, uh, give us a, a quick rundown of what the facts of that case were about. Sure, sure. Well, I joined everybody, I'm sure, in, in being surprised at seeing that Ferro Aminera was a, a, a respondent in an arbitration and subsequently a defendant um, in, in, the, uh, in the litigation. Um, Jane mentioned something actually that I just want to uh, key off, which is uh, SMA decisions, SMA uh, uh, arbitrations, unless the parties have agreed otherwise, usually result in a reasoned award. And that's really, really important for what we're discussing here, which is the uh, award of prejudgment security. And uh, the CMA, uh, CME case, uh, Commodities Minerals Enterprises, is exactly that kind of case. Uh, in a nutshell, there was a series of agreements that related to the export of iron ore from Venezuela and how those product, how that product would be handled uh, going through an offshore transfer station called Boca Grande II. Uh, there, were, there were dueling uh, applications for prejudgment security, and CMA, uh, CME was looking for almost $200 million in uh, pre-award security. They did get uh, $62 million. And uh, the big thing that I would just say, I would I advise people to take away from, uh, from that case in terms of the, the merits of it, were what the arbitrators found in order to grant that security. And I wouldn't normally quote from a, a, a case, but this is really succinct, I think. One, the panel was in agreement with other arbitrator panels, which have found that an award of security should be granted where, and this is the standard, there is a strong showing that a claim will succeed on the merits and enforcement of a judgment will be difficult. And they agree uh, that uh, with other panels that any approach to giving prejudgment security ought to be a reasoned, thoughtful approach, right? So where you've got these two factors, what you're going to have with, that, with an SMA panel is not kind of a rubber stamp it. They're going to take a look at the merits, at the arguments that are being made. They're going to see if those two boxes are checked, and if they are, the applicant will have a, a pretty good shot at getting prejudgment security. Uh, this uh, award, as you might suspect, with $62 million in prejudgment security, was not left undisturbed for very long. And, uh, and, and Jane can probably. Quickly... Jane, tell us, uh, following up on what Neil just described, what, what was the ultimate award that was uh, uh, issued by the arbitrators in this case? Oh, sure, sure. But, but first, I, uh, I want to make one extra sure. note. CVG, the, def uh, the respondent in the arbitration and the defendant in the later court case, is a state owned entity of the Venezuelan government which is important when it comes to the security uh, considerations. The contracts that were entered into were pre-Chavez, um, and they continued performance both pre-Chavez and post-Chavez. So the political situation in Venezuela was a considerable factor in the arbitrator's determination. Um, as you probably guessed by now, given the title of our panel, uh, the arbitrators awarded over $62 million in security to be posted 
and not in the form of a bond or a guarantee. They awarded it in the form of cash deposited in a New York bank account held under an escrow agreement. So the, the principle that we've been talking about, that an award will be enforceable, was clearly in the, in the uh, forefront of the arbitrator's minds here. And they noted that um, some of the language they used is that the difficulty CME is likely to face in, in enforcing an eventual final award and the considerable financial hardships it would encounter if the award cannot be enforced weigh heavily in favor of awarding prejudgment security. Thank you, Jane. Appreciate that. Uh, Dan, did that uh, decision, the award of the, of the three arbitrators, hold up in court ultimately? Well, the short answer is yes. But um, the, the, the court also concluded that the panel did not exceed or imperfectly execute its power, which is very important here, and, and the decision was upheld. So, so that award was ultimately challenged in the courts by the respondent in the, in the CME case? Yes, but so, so far has not been appealed at all. So it's been decided at a district court level, yes. but not yes. taken up to a higher yes. court. Great. Um, well, that's, that, that concludes our speaker's presentation. We've got about one minute for questions, and we'd be happy to take anyone. Yeah, Larry. I think you're crazy if you think you can have an arbitration clause in a mortgage. Um, and, I, and while I, could, I certainly see them as viable in, um, in charters and leases in certain, circum certain circumstances, if I was advising a lender, yeah, I would never let that lender have an arbitration clause put in their loan agreement or the other finance stock. So you didn't really talk about that title specifically? Did you really think that it would be wise to put arbitration clauses in those kinds of documents? I think it's relevant in sale and purchase, bare boat, and that's those are the ones we 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 yeah. Take a mortgage, for example. I just wanted to clear clear this up. In order to have jurisdiction over a mortgage, you need to have an They owe the money or they don't. You know, they repaid, they repaid the loan or they didn't repay the loan. There's a default or there's not a default. And granted, I'm someone who usually represents the party bringing the money. <laughs> but, but I would not want that to be arbitrary. Well, but when well, it. Well, it depends. It depends in part on where your borrower is because there is an international convention for the enforcement of arbitration awards. But getting court judgments enforced is not, although if you have a U.S. court judgment, most court places will enforce it. But if you have a non-U.S. judgment, you might have a little harder time enforcing it in certain jurisdictions. So I agree with you that usually we see court clauses in loan agreements, particularly if the choice of law is New York. Yes, I, I agree completely with that, or English law. But there are circumstances where it's easier to enforce an arbitration award than it is to enforce a, a court order, yeah. depending on where you have to take that order to get enforced. 
Try enforcing a mortgage with an and, arbitration. And Neil, and Neil, Neil you <laughs> had something to add to? I think, you know, we were trying, uh, the mortgage uh, component, uh, I, your points are well taken, but and we didn't have time to cover them. Unfortunately, we're out of time right now. But uh, I think the point we're trying to make is that the, um, uh, the presence of SMA arbitration clause is not always in the typical charter party. And some of the cases we've compiled, happy to share them with you, is we've seen SMA arbitration clauses uh, involved in stock purchase agreements, for example, uh, in a breach of a promise to loan funds within the context of the party's joint venture agreement. That's been arbitrated pursuant to SMA. We've seen it in the context of, of course, of uh, sale leaseback situations. Uh, we've seen it in the context of the determination of fair market value of, of shipping assets. Um, uh, we've seen it in, in the context of a non-compete agreement and an asset purchase agreement where, again, that was arbitrated. So where, uh, your point on specifically on traditional uh, bank mortgage, shipping mortgages, Larry, is well taken, but our point was to show that uh, uh, the use of the SMA clause can be, uh, uh, that the arbitrators, let me put it this way, certainly have the expertise to consider far more complex issues in a, in a finance context. But thanks for your comments. That concludes our uh, presentation today. Thank you very much for attending uh, and for your interest.